Hi, everyone. This is Greg Harton. I'm the editorial page editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. I'm joined today by Rusty Turner, who is editor of the Democrat Gazette here in Northwest Arkansas. And we have the opportunity today to speak with Michael Bennett Spears, who is a candidate in District 87 for the Arkansas House of Representatives. He is from Salem Springs. Uh, his uh, background is in the, the hospitality industry, uh, uh, working with folks at uh, restaurants, uh, uh, at a restaurant and uh, uh, helping them out. And uh, uh, we, we welcome you to the, to the interview. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Awesome. Well, uh, if you would, just tell us a little bit about District 87. Give people an idea of the basic lay of the land of, of what that district is. Alrighty, so um, District 87, it's an interesting district because it's about 22 miles from one end to the other. Um, it covers the areas of Salem Springs, Tawnytown, Elm Springs, and then kind of juts up to the northwestern corner of Springdale there around J.B. Hunt Park. If that kind of, to kind of give you an idea, just runs along the 412 corridor and then takes a little jump over into Springdale there. So. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let's just start off by, by you telling us a little bit about what made you decide to get into the race and then also uh, what you, um, if, if you're elected, what people can expect of you. Got you. Um, it's an interesting way that I wound up getting into the race, actually. I've always been very involved in politics as far as following them, working in the background, working on local community things, et cetera, et cetera. And on November 6th, six days before the filing deadline, I got a notification that my district was unopposed. And suddenly I had all these people going, well, Michael, you know, you like politics, you know these things, you love people, why don't you do it? And so I talked to a few people I knew in politics and such and said, what would this look like? And we said, okay, let's do this. And I was very excited to raise the filing fee in only two days. Um, that's a massive hurdle for those just getting into politics because it's a pretty considerable sum of money. And so that's kind of how I got here <laughs> is just, I'm the kind of person that wants to help people. I believe in a bright future for Arkansans. And I care a lot about the issues that communities in Arkansas care about. As far as what people can expect from me coming to office, first and foremost, is everything I do, I do with compassion. I do with consideration of how it affects everyone. And so I want to see legislation that benefits all of Arkansas, not just select communities and select groups of people. I also greatly value transparency. I'm the kind of person that I'll always be honest with you. My door is always open. I'll answer any question you have. And if I don't have the answer, I'll tell you, I don't have the answer, but if you give me a minute, I will find someone who does. And so that's what I look forward to bringing to the legislature is someone who is easily identified with as just your average blue collar worker, Arkansan, who cares about the same issues as you and actually looks forward to hearing from you and talking to everyone possible. Okay, um, you mentioned uh, there would not be anybody in the race that was for the primary. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, of course, you've got a, a Republican uh, incumbent in the, yes. in the race uh, uh, for November 3rd. So yeah. uh, there will be a choice for voters to make uh, come November 3rd. 
uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you feel like uh, differentiates you uh, as far as when voters go in to make that choice. Uh, what what are they what are they making a choice about? Um, I think that for me in particular, my big concerns are affordable, accessible health care, ensuring that we have a strong and well-funded educational system, that we have strong communities, and that every worker in Arkansas receives a fair living wage. That last one, I think, is a big contrast between me and my opponent. As someone who has spent their life working a blue-collar job, working in the restaurant industry, a living wage is very dear to me, and it's something that I have a lot of experience with. By contrast, when District 87 voted by 62% to pass the fair minimum wage increase, my opponent went three times and tried to undo that. And I think that that kind of showed a disconnect with the voice of the communities in District 87. And so that I think is the biggest contrast as you can see with me, my promise is I will always respect the will of the people and always vote in their interest. So uh, when you talk about a living wage, what, what give, give us a sense of what, what it is that you believe that entails. I think, I mean, ultimately the general consensus right now is, you know, $15 an hour is kind of the golden spot for a living wage. Right now at Arkansas, we're coming up on, I believe we'll be at $11 an hour at the, as the final increase in minimum wage as opposed to the federal amount, which is $7.25 an hour still. And we've seen time and time again that people just cannot live on that. You can work 40 hours a week making $7.25 an hour and still not afford basic rent on an apartment, much less car, cell phone, health insurance, utilities, groceries, everything else. And so to me, a living wage is something that it provides the basic necessities. If you as an individual go and work 40 hours a week, full-time, do a good job, you're a productive member of society, you should be able to come home and know without a doubt that your rent is paid, you have utilities, and there's food on the table. So that's the three, you know, it's the basic necessities yeah. of life should be yeah. provided by that. Okay. Um, Rusty, you got, uh, got something you want to sure. jump in with? Sure. You had, uh, you had mentioned you work in the hospitality industry. You also mm -hmm. mentioned before we came on the air that you had, uh, uh, during COVID-19, you had uh, been furloughed and had to, uh, had to um, utilize the state's uh, unemployment um, uh, insurance um, uh, mechanisms. Uh, I'd be interested in your perspective uh, uh, about how that system worked and, and what you observed as somebody who had to utilize it and what could be done differently uh, if you are elected, what would you advocate to do differently in, in that process? Well, I think the big one that we saw everywhere was it didn't work at first. Um, the system was completely unprepared for the onslaught that it received because it was unprecedented that that number of people found themselves unemployed all at once. Um, the primary issue we saw with unemployment was that the system was outdated. The state had not put the funding and time necessary to have it even close to being prepared for something like this. Um, and so my experience was, you know, we only had the one phone line to call to file claims because the website kept crashing. <laughs> and so you suddenly found yourself in this position where you knew you needed these funds, you knew those funds were there, 
but you simply could not get through the line to access them and file your claim. I knew some people, I got lucky. Um, I was laid off two days later, I filed, I actually went to the office in person where you stood in line outside, took your paperwork in. And about two weeks later, I started receiving benefits. I knew some people who did not receive their benefits until two weeks before the restaurant reopened. And so they spent that entire pandemic with no income, even though they should have had it. The money was there. It was just a matter of getting the system to work. So I, what I would like to see if I was in office is more efficiency, more disaster preparedness, and something to where at least, sure, it's going to be difficult when something like this hits, but we at least have a good solid structure prepared to move forward with it and make sure that people can readily receive the resources they need to survive. Okay, and in a more general sense, um, tell me about your uh, evaluation of the state's performance during the pandemic overall, not just unemployment, but you know all other aspects of it. And then uh, if there's anything you would have liked to have seen done differently, what is that? What, what would mm -hmm. they Overall, I hate to say that I think the state moved too slow on a lot of things. You know, um, the mask mandate is a prime example. I greatly support the mask mandate. I think it was a good move. I think it should have happened at the very beginning, the minute we saw COVID-19 entering Arkansas, rather than a few months down the line, simply because had we done something like that, put that mask mandate in place, I think we could have curtailed a lot of the damage we saw from this. I would have liked to have seen broader participation in a lot of communities with the mask mandate as far as people wearing masks and following guidelines, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the main thing, like the mask is a big one for me. And also contact tracing, you know, we struggled we still don't quite have contact tracing where we'd like it to be and it's kind of one of those things that we're at a point of going well we're never going to get there we're never going to have enough contact tracers to follow these cases through to ensure that people know if either a they are positive b if they've been exposed to someone who's positive and these are all things that are critical to controlling this pandemic getting it over as quickly as possible and getting our economy and society back to running as close to normal as we can get through this. Okay. Um, there, there's a difference, I guess, between being a uh, you know average Joe citizen who thinks that you know we should all wear masks and all of that, um, and being a lawmaker who who um, has some ability to influence mm -hmm. um, you know public policy at the state level. When you talk about all of your kind of desires as to when the mask mandate went into effect and you wish more people were doing some of those things, what what do you think the legislature should do to actually, you know, I mean, once we have a mandate, or, you know, how do you how do you put into effect something that makes people do what yeah. you're saying they need to do? I think with that one, it's not so much a matter of you know strong arming of making people do things as it is ensuring that the information is broadly accessible to communities you know like these are the benefits of wearing masks these are the cons of not wearing a mask making sure that information is available in 
not just English, but in Spanish and Marshallese as well. That's a big one in Northwest Arkansas. And I think that we should have done just more of a broader, for lack of a better terminology, PR campaign with it of saying, you know, okay, this is COVID. These are the effects of COVID. These are the things we can do to mitigate the damages of COVID. And so it's not that I necessarily believe that we should have just come in and forced people to do things, but I think we could have approached it in a much more unified way and in a much more clear and efficient way so that everyone has a good understanding of why you should do these things. And, and some lawmakers have, uh, have uh, actually filed a lawsuit against the governor in terms mm -hmm. of his use of executive power and um, or his executive authority and extension of the emergency um, uh, by which the, a lot of the public health measures are in place, um, uh, you know, claiming that the legislature should be more directly involved in that, especially after so much time has gone by in the midst of this pandemic. How do you feel about that? I believe that there's a weird disconnect. Um, it's disquieting to see this divisiveness both within the legislature itself amongst its members and between the legislature and the governor himself. I think that we should be doing, putting more effort into working together into doing something that we all came to a unified agreement on. I can understand the legislature's concerns of, well, we just kind of got left out. To my understanding, Asa Hutchinson's response to some degree was, well, I did what I had to do for the safety of Arkansans. And I can completely respect that opinion on that. Um, and so at the end of that, yeah, that would be, you know, I just think that we need to be putting more effort into ensuring open communication amongst all the branches making sure we're all on level playing field. I don't think it should be the job of either one role or another. I think it should be a concerted effort amongst the entirety of the government in Arkansas. And some of the, some of the folks who supported the, the lawsuit and signed on as, as uh, uh, on the lawsuit uh, indicate that, that it's their belief that, that uh, the emergency declarations have gone on so long that it's essentially uh, uh, cut the legislature out of the process, the decision-making process, and mm -hmm. that and that there may be some, there there may be maybe some changes that need to be made in the Emergency Powers Act to automatically bring the legislature back into the picture uh, over um, you know when certain time periods are met. Have you thought about any? Has any of that come to your uh, uh, come to your attention? And do you think that might be uh, uh, an area where there might be some uh, uh, some discussion in the legislature next year. I'll admit that that's one that hasn't really come across my table too much, but in general, I would support something that, once again, you know, that does automatically trigger the legislation's legislature's involvement, because once again, I think that anything that keeps all the pieces working together so that you don't get something that's just working by itself over here in the corner, disconnected from everything else. So. I do think that it would be a good idea to build something into the executive or emergency powers act where the legislature is automatically included. One of the um, other things that's been going on during COVID-19 has been, um, uh, you know, the, the, the real conflict between race relations, I guess what you would call race relations and law enforcement and, 
and just uh, in the broader sense, just in society in general. Um, uh, it's been a kind of a tumultuous year with that. Um, what do you feel like the role of a state legislator is to be able to take some of what we've heard and learned uh, and uh, actually use it as a lawmaker? And what's the appropriate role for the legislature uh, in moving forward with that? I think a prime example of that would be the hate crimes bill. That's the big topic right now is when you look at the fact that Arkansas is one of only three states in the nation that doesn't have a hate crimes bill, it's high time for us to catch up in 2020. And I believe that the legislature, that's well within the legislature's realm of what it should and could do. And in supporting legislation such as that and passing it in Arkansas, will show the minority communities that we are listening, that we do understand their concerns and we are making moves to better protect their communities as a whole. I also would like to see moves to require more training for our police officers. I think that a lot of the issues we see is just, it's exactly that. It's a lack of training. It's a lack of giving them the tools they need to be prepared for the myriad situations they find themselves in. And so now on a state level, well, and I think this next one may be more of a local level thing, but we should be working more to ensure that our officers are out in the community, that they know the faces that they're interacting with so that it's not just a dangerous stranger. You know, so you get in, you say, oh, well, I know this guy, you know. And so I have a history of interacting with him. Therefore, that's gonna kind of mitigate the adrenaline in the moment, you know, you don't have that unknown that makes people feel long wary and therefore leads to, frankly, the police brutality we've seen in some places. And so I think once again, it's a matter of passing legislation that shows that the legislators listening and paying attention and also just making those efforts to ensure that our communities are connected and that everyone's communicating amongst each other. And do you uh, get the sense that the hate crime legislation is um, should that be viewed as a response to the police brutality issue? I think the police brutality issue is a part of it, but by no means the end sum. Um, the hate crimes bill covers such a broad spectrum of things that we need to see in society that the police brutality is just one small piece of it. If that's so you, that kind of... So you could, you could see the... It, I mean, so much of this arose out of, uh, out of, you know, the, the Minneapolis uh, situation, uh, you know, and all the, uh, that, uh, would you be able to see the, the hate crime legislation being applied to a police officer who, who is in that situation? Uh, that's what I'm, I guess that's the, those are the two dots I'm trying to connect is how gotcha. hate crime legislation connects to, to that sort of, uh, situation. I think that one gets tricky. Um, I don't know that you could necessarily turn around and charge an officer with a hate crime. Mm -hmm. That would take a lot of evidence. A lot of, you know, you would want to make sure that that was a foolproof case on that. With me, the hate crimes bill, I guess, applies more so in the terms of just broader community crime, you know, violence against people because of the color of their skin, because of the religion they choose to follow because of their sexuality, their gender identification. And so while I think that there may be some overlap in terms of that, I don't think it would be the 
main focus of connecting that with police brutality. Okay. Um, no, go ahead, Rusty. All right. Um, I was going to change topics and move to highways, roads, and how we pay for them. Uh, there's a, there's a, a question on the ballot in November uh, about extending an existing Hassent sales tax, uh, making it permanent to continue to pay for roads, road and highway improvements. So a component of that is that some of that money would come back to cities and counties uh, to assist them as well. So uh, tell me what you think about issue one, whether or not you're going to vote for it and why. Um, issue one is actually one that I have kind of evolved on as time has gone. Um, I know that previously when I spoke with the Den Gazette, I had said that I supported ballot issue number one because I believed in the importance of making sure that our roads and highways and transportation systems are maintained because they're critical to our economy. However, after speaking to a lot of people in the community and kind of digging into it more myself, I would have to say that I don't support ballot issue number one. The reason being that is it's a regressive tax and primarily with something like that so aggressive sales tax places the majority of the burden on lower income individuals it's just the nature of a sales tax kind of thing and so i don't think it's a good idea to build a regressive sales tax like that into the constitution so that from here on out it's the mainly the job of lower income individuals to make sure that our roads and highways and transportation are paid for. I would much rather see legislation that kind of focuses on a tax that comes primarily from our corporations, our bigger businesses. And the reason I say that is because those are the ones that gain the most profit from the roadways, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. And also due to transporting goods result in the most wear and tear on the roads. And so that way you're not placing all of the burden on individuals who are already strapped for cash. So that kind of okay. makes sense. What I'm so, so your, your opinion on that has evolved and uh, over what time period you said you, you uh, apparently in an interview with, you know, on the news side, you said you'd supported it. How long ago was that? And, and, and how long has that evolution taken? <laughs> that is honestly, it took me a few months because it's a really complicated thing. You know, it's one of those things that at face value, it's real simple. Do you want to support having our roads and everything maintained or do you not? And then you start digging into it. And over the last few weeks, I have kind of dug in and taught myself more about regressive sales tax, what those mean, where those apply, and talk to people in the community and, you know, what are their thoughts? How do they feel affected by this, et cetera? And so it is definitely, it's been a long road of researching, thinking about it, to lead me to the conclusion that I actually wouldn't support building that into our constitution. And that's my main thing is building it in in such a permanent way. So a lot of the uh, um, effort toward shifting to a sales tax is, is because, you know, the motor fuel taxes just aren't keeping up uh, mm -hmm. because of fuel efficiency and, and some people shifting to electric vehicles. Um, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, if, if we're not going to tackle that with a sales tax, um, what's what's the better option? You, you mentioned it kind of, I guess, shifting the burden more to kind of corporate uh, Arkansas. Uh, uh, but obviously, there are a lot of just, I mean, you and I drive as well, you yeah. know. Uh, uh, so what's what's our burden supposed to be on that? I mean, on that one, like, of course, we're still going to pay a degree of taxes, no matter what income level you're at, 
tax, it's the whole, you know, taxes and deaths, they're a fact of life kind of thing. And so no matter what you're paying in, it's a matter of the amount you pay and what percentage are you doing? And so once again, like with the regressive sales tax, just the way economy works, your lower income people are buying more food and electronics and that's what the majority of their income goes toward. So the majority of their income is going to be taxed with that regressive sales tax. Frankly, getting into budgets and how we're paying for things, et cetera, et cetera, I would like to see more focus on actually making the state budget in and of itself more efficient and paying closer attention to what we do with taxpayer dollars. So that rather than saying, oh, well, we've got to add a whole nother tax to this or take more money out of people's pockets, just use the money we already have more wisely and allocate it appropriately there. You know, if you take, for instance, the Arkansas Works program, that was a program that put the requirement to work to have health insurance. That resulted in $26 million being spent in the state, 18,000 people being kicked off their, off their health insurance, but had zero effect on the unemployment numbers. The idea being you know, these individuals who had state-funded health care or state-subsidized health care just needed to go out and work. Well, people lost insurance, the state lost $26 million and nothing changed. So if we didn't have inefficient programs like that in place, if we had researched that more and looked at that more deeply, that's $26 million that we could have used for something like roads. And so that's what I would like to see more of. I don't want to see more taxes on anybody really. I don't want to be that individual who's, you know, take money from the corporations. No, I would just rather see us use the money we already have with the systems we already have in place more wisely. I think you've um, seen uh, or on, on some of your, I don't know if it was Facebook or somewhere out there in the, in the internet world uh, that uh, you were, were advocating for the renter's rights and for, yes. uh, for habit, um, uh, tenant habitability. habitability. That's, yeah. that's a tough <laughs> that's word. That's a hard one. <laughs> um, uh, which is talking about essentially safe structures, you know, uh, mm -hmm. tenant safety, uh, some some basic level that that has met with a lot of resistance in the state legislature mm -hmm. in the past. Uh, 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 how do you feel like you could make a difference on that? With that one, I think there's this weird idea with renters' rights that it just means people don't have to pay rent, and to me, that's that's not the case at all. While Part of that is protections for people in terms of, you know, you can't just be kicked out of your home for no reason. There has to be justifiable cause, et cetera, et cetera. To me, renter's rights means more so ensuring that a building is safe. That, you know, a prime example is in Springdale recently, we had an issue with, um, I brought up with apartments who were infested with mold. The ceilings were caving in, da da da, the floors were wrecked. We should have base requirements in Arkansas for what a structure must be for you to rent it out to people. As it is right now, we don't even require a smoke alarm to be placed in buildings. And we've actually seen resistance from members of the legislature for something so basic as a smoke alarm. And so that's where renters rights comes into me is I don't believe that's, you know, oh, you shouldn't have to pay rent, but if you are paying rent, you should be able to expect to have a safe, healthy home to live in. And on the flip side of that, if you are a property manager or a 
homeowner, you know, what's our rental property owner, there should be a base expectation for you to maintain your place to ensure that you've got electricity, running water, air conditioning, that there are no, you know, mold and health concerns in the house and that kind of thing. I've actually, you know, heard from people who you would think would support that, but that they, from renters who mm -hmm. basically kind of feel like don't come in here, you know, this is, this is the place I can afford and you're going to, and you're going to make my rent go up if you start putting all these, you know, requirements on the, on the landlord, mm -hmm. um, which, yeah, that surprised me, you know, because you would think that all renters would think, yes, we should have smoke alarms and yes, we should have working, you know, all, and sometimes you don't get that response. What, uh, you know, are they wrong? That one is complicated because I can completely understand that fear, you know, of, well, yeah, the apartment I live in isn't that great, but it's cheap because it isn't that great. Yeah, yeah. And that puts us in a weird spot as we would transition into having those kinds of rules where you must maintain this, you must do this, et cetera, et cetera. Because the only reason that exists is because we've already previously built an environment that was right for that kind of thing to happen. Of, you know, oh, well, if you want good housing, if you want safe housing, well, then that's gonna cost you a grand a month. But if you're willing to forego your own personal health, I've got this one for $400 a month. And I think that that would be a complicated one to address, you know, and the way I would approach that would be, we need to ensure that there is rent controlled housing available. We need to ensure that our public housing system is strong that individuals have access to low income housing rather than every city just building row after row after row of this high end expensive housing. And I think that that would be much more easily accomplished if you put the rules in place that declare that if this property is going to be rented, it must meet these standards, but you also cannot charge an arm and a leg for it. And so it, it would take a very multifaceted approach, but I believe that we're fully capable of it. Okay. I think uh, the, the clock says we're just about out of time, believe it or not, that always flies by. Um, the, um, uh, I wanted to touch on uh, one other thing and then just ask you to, to touch on anything that we haven't asked you about, but uh, the, the moratorium on a, uh, on hog farms over around the Buffalo National River gets a lot of attention here in Northwest Arkansas, mm -hmm. uh, but isn't going anywhere, at least as far as we can tell, as far as the legislators go. How do you feel about uh, uh, having that, uh, using that to try to protect the Buffalo National River? Um, I believe that that's incredibly important. Um, I grew up in Northeast Arkansas. And so I grew up around agriculture and on livestock farming, et cetera, et cetera. And the undeniable fact of that is, is that it can wreak havoc on the waterways. And when you can see you know, the Buffalo River in particular, one of the first federally protected rivers and a major source of income for communities along it in terms of tourism, if we don't maintain that moratorium and we allow hog farms to come in and those hog farms result and run off into the river and destroy that ecosystem that draws so many people every year, 
it's going to completely wipe out whatever economic benefit there may be to allowing that hog farm to be there. And so I think that we have to remain focused as the natural state on protecting our natural resources, such as ensuring we have clean waterways. So. Okay. All right. Is there anything that uh, we haven't touched on that you wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to address? Um, really, I think we've covered a really good broad topic here. You know, I would just like to end with saying that, you know, to drive home the fact that my campaign is about affordable, accessible health care, strong education, strong communities, and a fair living wage. And I think that those are things that cross the aisle. I think those are things that every member of our communities care about. And those are the things that I will fight for in Little Rock. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'll thank you on behalf of Rusty and, and uh, our newspaper. We appreciate the time that you've spent with us. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.